This week, we're speaking with Karen Shanmagaraja, who is CEO of Wealth Kernel, competing with the likes of UBS, Barclays, and other global wealth management firms. He's been living in London for the past eight years, but he's a Toronto native. We're going to find out why he's here and the interesting stuff he's working on. What a life to live. I'm on the come up. What a life to live. I'm on the come up. Hi, Karen. Hello. How's it going? Good, thanks for having me. Thank you for very much for answering the beck and call of this uh, podcast. And uh, yeah, we wanted to basically find out more about what you do, how you do it, what drives you, what makes you tick. But before we get onto that, let's have some fun questions. What do you think, street smart or book smart? I would say 50-50 on both of those. I'm not exactly the smartest guy in the street, I'm not exactly the book smart, but okay. I probably tilt towards street smart. Okay, Apple or Microsoft? Microsoft. London or Toronto? Uh, I gotta go with both of those as well. <laughs> I, I, money, I love Toronto. So. Okay, money or fame? Money. Casual or formal? Casual. Cool. All right. So let's get started. So tell me, tell me about Wealth Kernel and this new product of yours, Wealth Smart. Yeah, so we started Wealth Kernel about just over two, two years ago. Uh, it was based on my experience working in banking in, in London. Um, it was effectively I saw, I saw a transition going into technology and banks failing to keep up. So okay. Wealth Kernel was built to supply banks and asset managers with the technology they needed to transi transition into a digital economy. Um, more recently, we made WealthSmart public, uh, which is a company that's built on top of Wealth Kernel. We've been using it behind the scenes with friends and family for over a year to okay. testing our capabilities. Um, one of the frustrations we had was we couldn't showcase our technology because our technology can't really be seen. Yeah. But WealthSmart brings that to what a consumer. So it's more of a customer-friendly approach to Wealth Kernel. Yeah. The, the analogy I give people is Wealth Kernel. If you think of digital technology like a car, Wealth Kernel builds all the parts, the engines, mm -hmm. the the transmissions, the, the suspension. WealthSmart is the combination of all those things coming together into a form that people understand. Um, okay. So a car that people can drive. Yep. Okay. That's a, a very good analogy. So talking about wealth smart now, there's been a lot of hype around fintech, etc. Do you think customers right now are adopting, you know, this type of technology quickly compared to other startups? I think relative to other areas where startups are in, no. Just because financial services tend to be not as so if you look at if it's a pull versus um push scenario yeah. financial services is not one of those spaces where people can not would naturally be like right it doesn't solve a, a problem they immediately face like some for instance like social media it's a, it's a quicker adoption there's no yep. stickiness when it comes to money it takes a little bit longer the trust factor yep. there yeah um, and it solves problems that people don't kind of can avoid on a daily basis. It's not as fun for them to solve. Okay, yeah, no, so, so then that leads me into this question, which is really about, how, do you give yourself a timeline in the sense of how quickly customers are gonna start adopting this type of technology? Do you, is there a trend which uh, people, well, all global wealth um, kind of companies, financial institutions are really working towards, that customers are gonna start adopting this technology sooner rather than later? Well, the trend is up and the rate of increasing, depending on country changes, but in the UK where you're coming from a low base, it is picking up. Now, with all new technologies, it does take time for people to 
trust it and learn it. You know, you get your early adopters, but you want to kind of get to that S-curve or there's that book, uh, Crossing the Chasm, that kind of really goes into that. Mm -hmm. That will take time. And I'm pretty sure we're still before that. But with all things technology, you can't control the timing because, you know, I just I don't know the future in that sense. But, okay. But I can see where customer problems are. And because we're solving a problem, yep. for me, it's just a question of time when mass adoption happens. When customers realize that they have a problem and there's a solution. Yeah, or yeah. there's another way to solve that other yeah. than just procrastinating. No, that's that's a cool a cool answer. So I was going to start talking about what your predictions are and key changes uh, for the future, but I think you've just touched upon that right now. But um, go, go, going back a little bit, what's, you know, you're from Toronto, mm -hmm. uh, whereabouts? So I grew up in Weston and then last, before I moved to Montreal, I lived in uh, Jane Finch. Okay, cool. Um, what do you see as the two real, it's not two, what do you see the real differences between living in Toronto versus London, more about the startup scene? I know you haven't been working in the startup scene in Toronto, but what do you kind of like understand, see that as a real two, the real differences between the two cities? Well, from a just city-wise, you know, climate okay, yeah, <laughs> is a big yeah, difference. Yeah. Um, you know, it's I, cold there right now. It's cold there right now, but I'm actually, you know, I love winter. Um, I actually grew up playing ice hockey, so I miss that a lot. Okay. Um, also, just lifestyle, like, you know, living out in, by Weston or by Jane and Finch, you drove a lot, right? And yeah, yeah. I live in the city in downtown here, and I cycle to work. And I yeah. traded my Honda Civic for a giant Rapid, which is a, it's a type of bike. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so way way I live is massively different. Different, yeah. Um, in terms of the tech community... London is, is a, London and New York have some similarities in that because of the huge financial sector that, that seeps into the tech community. Yep. So naturally you have these sort of abundance of fintech where it's people who work in banking coming together with technology to do something. Now I know Toronto, um, I think it might be the fourth largest financial center in North America. It's okay. a big hub, and definitely the largest hub in Canada. So I would imagine they have a, you know, a blossoming tech community. Um, there's another firm called Wealthsimple, which is a, a Canadian robo-advisor, which is from Wealthsimple, yep, I've heard of so, them, yep. You know, we're competing with them in the UK, but you know, they're, you know, I can only praise them for the success they've had, and they're mm -hmm. a Canadian fintech, and I've heard other stories of Canadian fintechs. So there's a payment company, uh, when I was, I was giving a guest lecture at Concordia last year, and they were mentioning this is one of their six stories. Right, okay. No, that's pretty cool. So, a little bit of a broad answer, question here is really about how do you stay motivated every day? You're a CEO of a company. What's your, what drives you? What's the keeps you motivated? Let's be honest, CEO sounds very grand. I, <laughs> I run a small business and I employ about 10 people. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm trying to get bigger by the day, but. <laughs> you are an inspiration to a lot of people, so kind of don't sell yourself short. And a, you know, it's actually inspiration to do this is actually not that hard. Like for me, one is to, to be successful, not even like a financial or monetary sense, but not feeling like, the, the, the thought of failing sucks, okay? It's just, it's just, like, it just, it's unconceivable, right? Yeah, I, can't yeah. even, I can't even put it into words how much I don't want that to happen. Yeah, yeah. But two, it's also my employees, yeah. you know, people who've joined us, these guys have taken equity, they put a lot of faith in me, and I want them to do well, not just financially, but personally as well. You know, I want them to feel like, you know, I've devoted some time into this company, they will. My co-founders who've also paused their lives, who've left jobs to, showing me on this mission. I want mm -hmm. them to do well. 
are investors who've taken a leap of faith in me. Yeah. I want them to make money on me. You know why? Yeah. Because all yeah. the people who passed on me, I want these people to say, you know what, I trusted Kran with X amount of money. Yeah. And this guy 10 x it for me. You know? yeah. And I just, yeah. I want to deliver for people who've put their of faith course, in me. Of course, of course. Exactly, obviously, yeah. my friends and family and my partner, you know, she's obviously made a lot of compromise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to do well. And obviously, like all Tamils, in the, the day, you want to make your... You know, my father passed away, but my mom happy. You know, mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. to do well. You know, and another town will succeed. Yeah, no, no. As in, I, 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 I there's a lot of similarities in what you said about how I do things as well. Um, you touched upon your partner, um, my wife. Yeah, yeah, your wife. I, I, ages ago when I when I was when I just before I got married, I shared an article with my wife about what it'd be like to be married to an entrepreneur. Can you give a bit of an idea of kind of more about the compromises? Your, you know, your relationship or your wife has to, or you have to compromise because you are, you know, you, you've got something that you love, which is your co- company and you, you, know, you dedicate so much time. Tell me about the compromises regarding your relationship potentially that you, uh, you know, currently got on hold or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, I would say if it, it, it'll put some stresses on any relationship mm-hmm. just because, you know, your mind naturally kind of wanders over to your company almost like it's like your child I don't have children yeah. yet but um, it, it consumes you and this is the problem not problem the nice thing about being an entrepreneurship is that this is what I do for fun this is my going to the gym this is what I do if I'm alone this is what I enjoy to do like other things that used to be interesting have become less interesting <laughs> I have a big smile on my face because I absolutely agree with you and so for my yeah. partner who you know she works uh, at, a, at a big for a law f- uh, accounting firm when she comes home she wants to live you know she wants to do stuff like cook or watch a movie for yeah. me naturally it's all optimizing time i don't want to cook as much i don't necessarily want to do as much i kind of want to do work i get home i shower have some eat and i want to do some more work yeah yeah and yeah. so that puts a lot of strain in that relationship and ultimately uh my wife syra has been so accommodating you know it, mm-hmm. it does put stress mm-hmm. on stuff because i just don't want to do stuff that other people find fun because my fun is at work work yeah exactly i think i think it's that whole thing what when people define entrepreneurship i always say entrepreneurship is finding a hobby that you can monetize and you know most ceos or more, most people that are in business they find something they love and they try and monetize it so it becomes their passion their hobby and everything and i think you've just touched upon that which is a great kind of well it just shows it's a piece of dna that runs through a lot of entrepreneurs so going back a little bit again um going back well talking about wealth kernel and wealth smart what's the difference like obviously you used to work for uh, barclays uh, a few some years ago give me the real kind of hardest what's the hardest thing basically about running your own business versus working for someone else what's the most difficult things i know and everyone knows the difference is good with things but what's the difficult things in comparison to working for somebody in terms of difficult as what i miss about it or what's harder now what's harder now um what's harder now one of the you, things you actually don't relax and i remember when i and this is sounds trivial but it's not in a weird way but when i left work right if i go home whatever time that was five six seven whatever at ten i go home like i don't go home thinking about what i have to do or better yet when i go on holiday man when i put that out of office on nothing like, i don't like <laughs> you not, switch off i switch off yeah, nothing's gonna yeah. make you think about it i, I don't exactly. check in until i get back to work and i check those yeah. emails but with the entrepreneur thing you never check out yeah and that's actually in a weird way I miss that sense of 
switching off. Yeah, and I forgot yeah. how that feels like. Yeah, without yeah. a serious amount of drugs or alcohol, that's just not going to happen, <laughs> right? So, no, no, I get it. That that's uh, again something I definitely share with you. <laughs> so, so I get it. Um, bit, a little bit more broad um, about uh, the you know what we're doing. Do you would you recommend any good books for entrepreneurs? of the future to really pick up and read about kind of thing? What do you, what do you recommend? Sadly, I think that's one of the things I've done wrong. I didn't read enough books, but there are a few. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone has read or probably will read The Lean Startup. Lean Startup, yep. That, that's a big one. I forgot the exact name title of the next book, but it's How to Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer. It's a, it's a, it's a fundraising book. It's all about all the, the ins and outs of raising capital. Okay, cool. I think yeah. it was Co or... Uh, the foreword is done by the, the founder and CEO of Twitter. Oh, but wow. it just kind of gives you that. Um, there's, there's a book called um, from the founder of Seacamp, Carlos Espinal. Yep, yep. Um, Carlos, the exact, yeah. You can probably put a link in your thing, but he wrote yeah. a book. I think it might be free. The book went to charity. Okay, but cool. I, it's a small book, but I read that thing inside out. All right. Um, I'm reading Ray Dalio's The Principles right now, okay, which cool. I'm not completed, but so far, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I'm a big fan of his believability-based decision-making, yeah. thing, which I'm trying to adopt, but not the way he, uh, not as stringent as he done. But, no? Okay. So that's what I'm reading now. But I should definitely read more. That's one of my failings, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah, Okay, cool. So, paint me a picture. What are you going to be doing in five years from now? Ultimately, I hope to be running this company and just a bigger and more successful company. Okay. Um, I think... I enjoy it so much that it would kill me to be doing something else. Ultimately, okay. I just want to so, be doing this. <laughs> so now, if, okay, in five years' time, I'm a big, you know, I'm a UBS. I see what you guys are doing. You know where this question is going. <laughs> I, a, I, I come <laughs> and, I, and I basically give you a check and I say, Karen, you've done a fantastic job. Here's $20 million. Do you ride off into the sunset, cash out? Uh, not if it's UBS, hopefully it's like it was another <laughs> bank, maybe. Yeah, okay, fine, <laughs> um, fine. But no, no, I think it's like, without going too much into our history, I think what we've told our shareholders is that as a board, as a founders, we write to them and tell them this is what we think the value of this deal is to what the value of the company is. And if our shareholders feel that we should sell, I'll sell, right? Okay, um, yeah. Ideally, I hope to be added more value than 20 million in five years' time. Um, but... When it comes to this type of stuff, I put my shareholders' interests ahead of mine, per se, yeah. because their money's also in this company, right? Of course. So as much as, but if I felt it was a low price, I'd probably make the case to why I can unlock more value by not selling. Mm-hmm. And if I've done that so far, I'd hope that my shareholders would back me, and my founders, but like, to be very clear, I have three co-founders who do extremely, two other co-founders, three in total, and you know their opinions also matter. Yeah. Um, but. I tend to kind of take the lead slightly on the sort of money and valuation side of it. Okay. But I, I, in this space, my value surprisingly would take a my sorry my interest would take a backseat to my shareholders and my co-founders yeah, and, and yeah. employees. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a but hopefully, we can do it a lot better than twenty million. So twenty million is not gonna. Well, I want to be doing make more. Make you think. <laughs> think yeah, about it's it. one of those amount. Yeah, like it's just okay. So let, let, in five years' time, I'll come back to you with a with a check for about fifty million, and let's see, let's see what you do. Let's see <laughs> yeah, what you. I'll, do. I'll be humble for a million. It's not even about the money. It's just, I know, it's a I know exactly. Right? I, I just want to see how what it will take you to exit. That's all it is. Um, okay, so here's here's another question. So, 
you've obviously raised in Toronto, but you went to Singapore. Give me, give me your journey to London. Oh, yeah. So I'm born in Sri Lanka. Uh, Whereabouts? Naukuri. It's probably a small place no one knows. It's okay. near uh, Putur Road or Achuali Pakam. Okay. Um, it's like, only things, nothing famous about this place other than they have this well that everyone visits because it's supposedly... Well, the CEO of uh, Wealth Kernels from there. <laughs> putting the place on the map. Yeah, I mean, this place is known for special types of onions that they grow in the red soil or something. Because oh, wow. when you go there, yeah, it's a farming, like small little farming okay. place. Nothing fancy. But it's, in the, it's just outside of Jaffna. Okay. Uh, in the peninsula. Um, so I was born there and ended up in Canada, grew up in Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, if anyone's listening, obviously Western Road, a lot of my friends out there by <laughs> Weston and Lawrence, Jane and Lawrence, <laughs> you, you know, you got to represent where you're from and then Fair moved out to Jane and Finch uh, and then Keelan Eglinton in high school. Um, got really lucky and took a chance and moved to Montreal where I did my undergraduate degree at Concordia University. Mm -hmm. um, great Tamil community out there. What did there. you study? So I majored in finance, double minored in accounting and political science. Okay. How did you find that? I, I knew I was going to do finance. So okay. Yeah. So you knew. But I like the poli side stuff, whether it's like back home stuff or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I like the political science stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think it, inter it relates a lot with finance and the economy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's a good fit. Um, and in 2008 hit. And I didn't want to just get a, a job for the sake of it. And a good friend of mine was already living in the UK. Okay. Um, he's actually my co-founder now. Um, so Yannick, who I met in Montreal, moved to the UK, did a master's. And then I said, well, he said it was all right. He told me about his experience. I've never been to London before and thought, you know what? How bad could it be? And I just, uh, I was lucky enough, my grades are okay enough for me yeah. to get into master's. So yeah. I did my master's at CAS. Okay. Graduated and I was, I was supposed to come back. And then I got a really good offer from Barclays um, before I graduated. And this is very different in Canada, but here they give you offers before you graduate sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And then... I graduated on a Friday and I, was, I started work at Barclays on a Monday. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then I, with Barclays, I kind of climbed the ranks as an analyst. Yeah. Um, in between, Barclays sent me to Singapore for six months, worked in structured products and derivatives for a bit. Okay. And I got really lucky again and someone sort of saw my work ethic or I don't know, maybe they just liked me. And uh, I, I, one thing led to another and I became a portfolio manager. Uh, and I, again, just climbed around. Back in the UK? Back in the UK. Oh, so I was wow. called back. Okay. Yep. And then became a, a portfolio manager. And a portfolio, what, are they, what does a portfolio manager do? Effectively, um, I manage people's money. That's yeah. what I do on okay. a day to day basis. It's yep. slightly different than a stockbroker. Mm -hmm. I have control over from a day to day basis, and I invested in stocks, bonds, um, alternative investments, et cetera. Okay. So going from a portfolio manager, how did you get this idea to start your business? So when I was at Barclays, I saw how they were, I saw like the regulatory environment change and I saw technology changing. Um, as a portfolio manager, you know, you invest in technology companies. And because I had more experience in American and Canadian equities, where vast majority of the tech companies are, I had a good handle on what was happening and financial services. Um, combined with what I was seeing in the UK, I, I thought there was an opportunity. So I initially actually proposed this internally at Barclays and I um, suggested that I become the chief of staff for this digital wealth business at Barclays. Okay. Didn't get the role. I nearly got it. I was uh, shortlisted for the role. So you, so tell me, so you actually put forward the idea. Yeah. And then they ran with it, but they didn't take it. They didn't on. run with it. Okay. So what happened was, they were in, so the chief of staff is someone that helps 
so on. I've never been a chief of staff, but vaguely mm-hmm. my understanding is that if there's a head of a division, let's say this, mm-hmm. you have the CEO of Barclays and they have their division, CEO yeah. of the investment bank, the private bank, and they call them heads. And they have like this chief of staff guy who helps him manage that. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like his right hand person. I want to do that. And I said, well, my idea for the bank or this part of this division would be restructure it by using technology and kind of combine some divisions together. Mm-hmm. And they liked it because it's not normal for someone who has never done a, those type of consulting McKinsey roles. Mm-hmm. A lot of the guys who do this role at Barclays are ex-McKinsey or Accenture yeah, or one yeah. of those firms, Bain. But here I am, who's coming from the investment side, just decided to drop that and kind of come and help restructure division. I had yeah, some really yeah. bold ideas on how yeah. to do this. And I got really far because they liked the ideas, mm-hmm. not because I was qualified to do it, but they liked the vision I had for it and sort yeah. of the understanding. But ultimately, I didn't get the role. But I realized at that point, though, if Barclays had these issues, every other company in the, in the country would have those issues. Right. Okay. And so there was an opportunity to sell the solutions for those problems yeah. vis-a-vis software. Yeah. So that's where Wealth that's Kernel. Kernel. And the word Kernel comes from like Linux Kernel. It powers... OS's. Yep, yep. So I want a wealth kernel to be powering digital wealth management businesses. Within the financial institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. So going away from entrepreneurship, well, it might not be. What are you most proud about yourself? That's an awkward silence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to brag? No, I'm just, I don't as in, what, give me one of your best achievements to date with the company. With the company, we haven't failed, which for mm-hmm. a startup, for those people who've been on that route, yeah. you know, I feel like that's an achievement in itself. Like, I genuinely say that. Yeah, yeah. I remember when we met a couple of, about a year ago, it was your one year anniversary of Wealth Kernel and you booked your first bit of, um, what was it, you, in, with Wealth Kernel, you booked your first bit of kind of Revenue. Uh, business. Yeah, we yeah, actually got like, paid. Yeah, you got paid on the day of your one year anniversary. Yeah, like and I remember you were really proud about that and I thought that was a really big achieve- achievement. Yeah, and so yeah, that goes back to my things. Like when you build something and another and this the company that paid us, I'm not I'm not gonna mention their name, but they're probably one of the largest providers of financial services. They're not in the UK, but they're in mm-hmm. mainland Europe. And when someone pays you for your services, yeah. and this is, a, this is not like your friend, this is a legitimate company that's yeah. listed on a stock exchange, yeah. pays you for your services and thinks you're worth paying for, that means, you're, you know, that, found, that, that feels nice. You know, yeah, it's a yeah. tangible achievement. Yeah, it's not some award, it's not being some top mm-hmm. 30 or this or that. It quantifies your product in the marketplace and quantifies your team's work. And yeah, and it, yeah. it solidifies that you're adding value, you're going yeah. down that route. And that was a big achievement for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you raised any money for the company? Or have yeah. you had any kind of raises? Yeah, so we're supported, I'd say, roughly one third by venture capital firms. So Seedcamp, okay. which yeah. is, I'm not sure if they're... They're one of Europe's largest VCs. Yep. Um, and they're our first earliest supporter, and they've done two rounds in us. And I have a lot of respect uh, for the CCAM team, Carlos and Rushma, who really took a chance on me very early in the journey. Um, you know, they, they took a massive chance on us, uh, and that's, I think, why they're one of the most successful VCs. Yep. Um, and so I'm always very grateful for them and what they've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, they're, they're huge now. Um, and the other two-thirds are friends and family who decided to invest in us when we were early. Yep. Um, and that's that's where we've been funded from. Fantastic. So, if any listeners wanted to come and invest into Wealth Kernel, <laughs> can they do that? Or yeah, you know, we're always looking to raise money as we hit Fantastic. milestones. Okay. Um, you know, so, any wealthy individuals that want to invest in 
a huge company that's going to blow up Actually, in the to next be couple honest, of years? Of, uh, Get in touch with Karen? Yeah, well, to be honest, if you're in the UK, um, more than investing us, if you sign up for the WealthSmart, which is wealthsmart.co.uk, uh, the minimum investment size are £100. I would actually be much more appreciative of that because wow. that gets us users and testing. Fantastic. Um, so £100 is the minimum that you can uh, play with regarding with WealthSmart. Yeah, so WealthSmart, it's, it's, it's in some ways incredibly disruptive to the market. Because yeah, UBS is £15,000, right, minimum? Yeah, yeah, UBS is for the big boys. Yeah, yeah, not that I have 15,000 pounds to <laughs> no, no. throw around. I just saw a UBS advert no. on the train just now, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, oh, so yeah. We, we've decided to, you know, just change up this industry, completely democratize it. Yeah. Um, effectively do what I used to do for people that I had hundreds of thousands of millions of pounds at Barclays, but down to 100 pounds. And it does sort of three level, I'd say three things that no one else has really done. We have something called automatic investment allocation, mm -hmm. which just means that you don't need to tell us if you're high risk or low risk. It kind of automatically does everything. So you don't have to worry about stuff. Okay. And it just optimizes to not lose money and make as much money as possible in layman's terms. Fine, fine. So, but do you give the opportunity um, for people to make high risk investments out of their choice? No. No. Because for you, it's all about making money, f period. Yeah. So okay. the people who don't know enough about what they want. So yeah. if someone like yourself is more sophisticated, you go in, actually, I'll give you another car analogy to explain WealthSmart. Okay. Uh, I miss my cars. I, I cycle here every day, so I miss my cars. I hate cars and, and what they do, but, I, you know, I, as any Trontonian will tell you, you know, everyone, you know, you live you, by your you car. You need a car, and yeah. I'm a Honda yeah. guy, so. Um, when you go into services today, mostly it's like a manual transmission car, or a manual car, or mm -hmm. a clutch car, yep. whatever you want to call it. Uh, you put yourself in one gear, and you're stuck in that gear, no matter yep. what the economy is doing. Yep. Right? So if you're high risk, you stay in high. If you're low, you're low. And you stay in that gear. Ours is like an automatic transmission. It starts low on gear one, and as your portfolio starts doing better, it goes up to gear two and three and four. It slowly right. ratchets up. But Fine. also, when things slow down, it goes back down as well. Okay, so it, it learns about you, and you, it's kind of predictive about it, the customer? Like it doesn't kind predict. Of it just, behind the scenes, we're using something called risk budgeting. Or, okay. And we're deploying that to based on how much profit or gains that your portfolio's done, we use that to increase the risk budget. Right, okay, fine. So, so the, more, the more money you make, the more the risk, more you, can risk take, you can take. And the more we yeah. step it up a notch. Right, perfect. Okay, so I would love for you to give some advice to entrepreneurs or people that are looking to take the leap, leap into entrepreneurship and for other hustlers out there, what kind of advice would you give in, 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 in a broad way? What would you give them advice? Um, I can't believe I'm saying this now, but I wouldn't have said this a few years ago, but don't do it for the sake of doing it. Like, I know it, it seems like everyone in their, in their dog is becoming an entrepreneur. Don't do that. I honestly think that you might get being an entrepreneur one or two shots in your life, like golden bullets to do it. Hold on to them until you get the idea that you're really passionate about. Like, it's tough. So if you, because it's going to be tough, there's going to be some bad days, and you want to make sure that those bad days you can at least hold on to an idea that you're passionate about. So one thing I'd say, don't just do it for the sake of doing it. But if you do have a passion and you have that gut feeling it's right for you, get your personal finances in order and go for it. Don't hesitate. Like, just pull the trigger. But plan, obviously, for worst case outcome. But don't hesitate. If you feel it and you have the ability to be an entrepreneur, do it. Don't, don't let f the fear of doing it stop you. Exactly. That's a really good advice. 
And uh, on that note, thank you very much, Karen, for your time today, CEO of Wealth Kernel and Wealth Smart. We would like to thank you again. And that is it for today's edition of Kobe and the Hustlers. Next week, we meet another hustler, uh, a British Tamil entrepreneur. We can't reveal who, but look, we look forward to presenting that person next week. And keep on listening, guys. Thanks very much.